You're listening to Napa Valley College Now on NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at NapaBroadcasting.com. With the exception of the daily cacophony out of Washington, no other issue has received as much attention as the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace. The reality is nothing new, yet the recent high-profile cases, particularly in Hollywood and Silicon Valley, have brought it all into bold relief. Many have wondered why we haven't heard more about other business sectors, Wall Street, education, corporate America in general. Well, there is an answer to all of this. The bottom line is that Hollywood, Silicon Valley and its startup culture, and similar entrepreneurial businesses just don't have deeply rooted HR departments. On the other hand, long-established institutions, be they on Wall Street, Main Street, or in wood-paneled boardrooms, have long-standing HR departments. An infrastructure which, while not a perfect answer, has seemingly made a significant difference in employee behavior. We're going to talk about this local focus on human resources today as I'm joined by Charo Albaran, the Executive Director of Human Resources here at Napa Valley College. Charo, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, before we uh, talk about some of these issues, tell folks a little bit about your background and how you got into the HR business, first of all. Well, I've been in HR for nearly 20 years in many different uh, roles. Um how I got into HR actually was quite interesting. I've always wanted to work with people. I started off wanting to be a medical doctor. Didn't quite want to deal with bodily functions. Um, so um, dealing with human behavior um, in the workplace really sparked my interest, and I pursued a master's degree in public um, administration with a focus in human resources and launched my career. I spent nearly 12 years at UC Berkeley, which is where I was groomed for the field of HR, so I owe a lot to the UC system for um, everything that I know and and where I'm at now. And talk a little bit about the scope of, at least within a university context here at Napa Valley College and and your experience in Berkeley, certainly, but, but in a general sense, about the scope of responsibilities that fall in the HR rubric, because it's more than just seeing who gets hired, who gets fired, exit interviews, etc. There's a much larger scale of work that's involved. And it's often um, misunderstood work as well. So everything from exactly what you said, the recruitment piece, um, the professional development piece, we now call it talent management, um, health and wellness, um, employee relations, labor relations. Um, and so the topic that we're speaking on today falls under um, employee relations and employment law. And it all falls under, as you alluded to before, it all falls into this general category of sort of human behavior. Yes. That part of HR and part of you know your job is really understanding what makes people tick and why people do the strange things they do. Talk a little about that. You know, every single day is always a surprise for me. Sometimes individuals will behave in a certain way and have different intentions or maybe not even aware that their behavior uh, made someone feel uncomfortable. And everyone comes from, you know, different backgrounds, different experiences that contribute to how a person behaves, um, whether in their personal life or in the workplace. Um, But every day um, dealing with um, 
various uh, situations. I'm never there's been occasions I've been surprised, but more than likely, I'm no longer surprised by some of the things that I've been exposed to. Part of it is that because everybody comes at it from different approaches, different backgrounds, different upbringings, it's really hard to, to really get people to see things the same way. I mean, when we talk about this issue of sexual harassment, obviously there are clear-cut cases, and we'll talk about that of things that that cross the line. But there's a lot of things that are more subtle, it seems to me, that really are a function of how people see the world, how they see their place in it and their relationship to other people. We do a great job here at Napa Valley College with our recruitment efforts to hire or strive to hire um, from a diverse background. And so we are definitely inviting individuals that have a, a diversity in their education, diversity in their experience, diversity in their in their lives and where they're coming from, both demographically, culturally, religious um, background. And so on a daily basis, all of those factors play into what we have to deal with in HR. And so even though we may have our set processes, our set policies, still individuals with their varying backgrounds, they, they still respond differently. It's interesting because there's this catch-22 that, that seems to be the reality of the workplace today. As there has been a push for greater diversity, and, and really bringing more people into different workplaces that they might not have been part of before, it creates exactly this problem. People that see the world differently, and it creates a lot more pressure on, on HR departments. It does, because if, a, if individuals are coming from organizations that have not done a great job in educating their staff on, you know, proper protocol, employment law, the sexual harassment policies, their company policies on sexual harassment, then they're entering our organization with that lack of knowledge. And so it's on us to educate our staff and make sure that they understand if you feel that you're, first of all, defining what harassment is for the employee and then providing the roadmap, if you find yourself in this situation, this is what you need to do. Talk about the greater sensitivity that you and your department have to this issue now. I mean, clearly it's not something that's new. It's something that's been, been out there and dealt with for a long time. But now everybody is hypersensitive. How is that playing out in the way you and your department deal with these issues, the way you think HR departments need to deal with them today? On the one hand, being aware, and on the other hand, not overreacting, I suppose. I don't think um, our department has changed our, our approach or how we handle any issues that are brought to our attention. We handle every single issue with seriousness. And that is um, irregardless of what's going on in social media with um, what's happening in Hollywood. Um, for us, especially in education, you know, we have um, in the state of California, we have to comply with FEHA, Federal um, uh, Fair Employment uh, Housing Act, um, which prohibits sexual harassment. And then we have, you know, our ed code, and then we have our own college policies um, that guides us to uh, inform all of our staff and managers what is not acceptable. And so any in any incident that is reported in our office of human resources, we take it very serious. We investigate these issues, but more importantly, we make sure that our employees are taken care of. 
How do you define it today? How do these things get defined? There's no rule book, or maybe there is. I mean, how, mm-hmm. how do you determine sort of what the baseline is? Sexual harassment can happen in one or two ways. It can happen um, quid pro quo. Um, you give me something for something or a hostile work environment. Um, in my experience, and in my experience is not the standard for all HR mm-hmm. professionals, but in my experience, I've dealt more with the hostile work environment issues. And so that could be um, telling jokes in the workplace. It could be um, having a uh, inappropriate poster in, in the workplace that makes someone feel uncomfortable, sending texts or emails to someone, um, putting them in a position, making them feel uncomfortable. And so anything that makes a person feel uncomfortable, irregardless of intent, anything that makes a person feel uncomfortable can be construed as sexual harassment or harassment in nature. Right. Part of it is that there's such a wide definition. How does that play out on the other side in terms of if somebody does cross the line, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in terms of of what the appropriate response should be? So for every incident, we have we have these incidents investigated. And so whether it's myself or outside investigator come and investigate and handling the situation with the utmost level of confidentiality. And depending upon whether or not the findings are sustained will depend on what the level of discipline may be. In the higher education environment, especially on this campus, we have two bargaining units where the disciplinary process is spelled out in their collective bargaining agreements. And so we have to definitely work with the union as we are looking at how we should proceed with um, the respective employee. How different is it just from from your knowledge? I mean, obviously, it it is that way here on on this campus as far as the unions are concerned. How different is it in an environment where there are employee unions, one or multiple as, as here, versus a company, for example, where there aren't? How different is the process? I've actually have had the experience of working for um, an organization without the union environment, and I have to tell you, is a lot more direct. Um, still required to investigate, uh, but you do have a lot more space in regards to discipline and uh, moving forward with taking immediate action. Whereas with the collective bargaining agreement, you have, depending upon the language in the agreement, you have to follow the disciplinary process. Mm-hmm. So it could take a difference in time, but the approach is very similar. Right. And those processes that are set up either independently or through various collective bargaining agreements, do you find that they're essentially similar? I mean, there's there's nuances to each and and different parts of the process, obviously, and, and we can't look at them all. But do you find that there's sort of a basic framework that they all kind of operate in that, that you can talk a little bit about? I do believe I do believe so. Um, I've definitely have had a situation um, dealing with another organization um, where a certain individual was molested by um, 
a, a staff member. Um, the organization put the staff member out immediately on administrative leave while the situation was being investigated. Um, that organization did not have union representation, um, but the way that the organization handled it was in line with my expectations as an HR professional. I believe that if an organization knows the the law and have established pro- policies and procedures, that the handling of sexual harassment cases should be fairly similar. Is it important sometimes that there be an example, whether it's in in education or, or in the private sector, that if there starts being more than one case, that somebody has to be made an example of, essentially, in order to get the word out? You know, I believe it's more important to educate the community, educate your employees, more importantly, educate your managers on what is sexual harassment, how to prevent it. Um, I've never have worked for an organization that was interested in making a particular case um, the, the example. And I hope to never be a part of an organization that would do that. Um, in my experience, it's more important to make sure that the employee who um, feel that they have been harassed, make sure that they are taken care of, make sure that they have access to um, our EAP employee um, uh, program that provides mm-hmm. counseling um, for situations, guidance, um, and making sure that the accused is getting um, a fair investigation and the ability to speak up mm-hmm. um, and against the accusations because not every single um, harassment claim that I have received has been sustained through an investigation. Mm-hmm. What is, is there a percentage, I mean, from your experience at mm-hmm. least, how, how often are they sustained and proved to be legit and how often is it just people need to sort of talk to each other? Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a very good question. I don't know if I have a percentage. Um, I I would say out of all of the cases that I've overseen, it's probably less than 1% where it came out where it wasn't sustained or um, they need to speak with each other or maybe it was consensual. Um, More likely than not, once the situations are brought to HR, they're there is something to investigate. How important is the culture and the history of that culture within any organization in terms of of how these things are dealt with and and whether or not they even are are frequent cases in some places? It is so important from the leadership all the way throughout the organization to establish with the organization that sexual harassment, harassment in general, and retaliation is not tolerated. That is so important. We got to continually educate and get that word out. Um, In fact, when individuals come to our office and um, file a harassment claim and we send out documentation inviting folks for... um, for investigation, we make sure that everyone understands about the retaliation policy. We take this very, very seriously, and it's so important that it is a part of the culture. The education is there. How much of it has been a part of, of 
your job since you've been here and from what you know about the history, a little bit about the history before you got here. How much has this been an issue or a problem here from, from time to time? In regards to sexual harassment, um, it hasn't been an issue. Um, and for Title IX situations from the student side, um, we definitely have had seen an uptick in sexual harassment claims on the student side. On the staff side, I've been um, employed with uh, with this district for going on two years. Time flies when you're having wow. fun. <laughs> um, but um, no, I haven't haven't seen. Um, definitely have had um, had a complaint, but as far as actual sexual harassment. Now, you you bring up an interesting point with respect to the student side, mm-hmm. and and how much, if any, of that falls under HR. I mean, obviously, it does with respect to you know the administrative and, and professional staff. What about the students? So we have a new position on campus, the Director of Equity and Inclusivity, and that person, the incumbent in that role, his name is Craig Alamo. And Craig Alamo is working um, jointly with me. He is now the Title IX officer for the district, and he works great with the students in receiving their complaints and making sure that any claims for harassment on the student side is investigated. And we work very, very closely um, on on that front, especially when it um, have an impact um, on staff or faculty in those complaints. Talk a little bit about Title IX and what that is for our listeners that may not know. So Title IX are protections for students, um, just like um, under FEHA protects students from being discriminated or harassed. Um, Our goal, whether it's in the workplace or in the classroom, is to provide safe environments so that, especially for our students, so that they can come here and get access to education without being discriminated against or being placed in a hostile work environment, hostile environment within the classroom. What kind of training, ongoing training and professional education goes on with respect to these issues here? How much of it is is an ongoing process? Is there more of it now because this is such a, a contemporary issue? Talk a little about that. Um, in regards to sexual harassment training, managers are required to be trained every two years. And is in regards to HR professionals or others, if ourselves, if we are not, um, haven't been recently trained, we will con- we'll consult with an attorney or bring someone in to provide that training. In regards to Title IX, there's um, a prolifera, uh, or should I say a handful of organizations that actually offer certifications and ongoing training. Um, both myself and my colleague, Craig, um, we make sure, especially in the Title IX front, that we're attending everything that we can um, to stay up current um, on Title IX issues. For sexual harassment, myself, I do attend a number of trainings offered by several different law firms to stay current on the laws to make sure if there's any changes. Um, lately, um, we have been very consistent. The approach has been pretty steady. Um, haven't received any um, recommended um, uh 
recommendations to change how we handle sexual harassment claims. What about training internally for administrative staff, for faculty, etc.? I will put my plug in. So I'm actually developing a training calendar for administrators and confidentials for this summer. And so administrators will have access to mandatory training. Um, I'll repeat that again. It's my plug. Mandatory Mandatory training training. for all administrators. It is a requirement. Uh, Managers have to be trained every two years on sexual harassment. That is a requirement. And talk a little bit about what that what constitutes that training. I mean, what's involved? So you want to define for your manager exactly what is sexual harassment. How is it viewed? How do you identify it? How do you prevent it from happening in your particular department? So, for example, years ago, I worked with a group of colleagues, and um, someone received a gift from their significant other. It was a cactus, and the cactus was in the shape of a particular um, part of the human anatomy. And the group of individuals sat around making comments about the cactus, um, not taking into consideration that a couple aisles over, or should I say the very next aisle over, there were other employees that did not find any of the commentary funny mm-hmm. and made them feel very uncomfortable to the point where they didn't want to engage with any of the individuals who are making those comments. So it's being aware as a manager that even trying to be funny, having stories, um, having pictures on a cell phone, having posters, sending texts, um, even being aware that closing a door, if if you know that a person is not comfortable can be perceived as harassment. We, we are in the business of creating safe environments for all of our staff. We want everyone to feel comfortable without feeling that they are working in a hostile work environment. You started out talking about how long you've been doing this. Yes. How has all of this changed in all of those years? How different is it today than it was 15, 20 years ago? All of those years have been in education. And so I've I've been very privileged that way to see a lot of trends. What I can tell you is the process for handling sexual harassment claims haven't changed. Mm-hmm. The individuals have changed. People are a lot more sensitive, a lot more sue-happy, if you will. And so I have seen a little bit more of that rather um, than I see a change in how, as employers, we handle the claims once it's received. Mm-hmm. Has that had a positive impact? As people are more sensitive, as that word has gotten out there, is more concerned about lawsuits, has it helped it, in terms of making people more aware of what they should and shouldn't do? I think it helps as um, being H- an HR professional. I definitely think it helps us stay focused and make sure we're doing the right thing for both parties and take it very serious because we know that the intention of either party could change and mm-hmm. it could land into in, in court. Mm-hmm. So we do take it very seriously. And how much of, of time, roughly, it, does dealing with this take in terms of your you, your department, and just as an as a issue and a potential issue out there. 
How long does it take? I mean, is it something that really is part of, of every day's business? Oh, sometimes I wish it wasn't. <laughs> um, depending upon the complexity of a claim, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it could take two or three months to just investigate the complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending upon the results of the investigation, it could still take months to go through a disciplinary process if that is the result. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it can take a while. Is it a part of our daily life? I don't I don't believe it's a part of our daily life, but it's definitely a part of my responsibility. And as you see, finally, as, as you see this all of a sudden, you know, which was a subset of all the many things that, that you and HR departments do, now that this has become so front and center, at least in, in the public consciousness for the moment, how has it changed how you think about it and how you're just generally aware of it? I love being comfortable at work, and I love bringing 100% of myself at work. I have a great sense of humor, and I love to use my humor. I, too, have become more sensitive and more careful with even some of the discussions that I have, um, even how I handle individuals. If I am speaking with an individual in, in my office and they become emotional, where in the past I would have just immediately reached out to give someone a hug, mm. I now ask for permission I see that you're upset. Do you mind if I offer you a hug? Would that make you feel better? You know, so it's it's stopping and pausing even myself as a manager, as a executive director of HR. I, too, pause and check myself constantly to make sure I am not creating a hostile work environment with the individuals that I come in contact with. Well, I thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Chara Alboron, the Executive Director of HR here at Napa Valley College. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. NapaBroadcasting.com, the online radio home of Napa Valley College.